Well, we're going to turn now to God's Word, and uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is John Neville. I'm uh, a pastor of a new church in Ferndale, Washington called Hilltop, and uh, we are busy right now planning and gathering, and uh, we're going to be starting services later this year, uh, hopefully around the end of fall. So, very exciting stuff, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to come and spend uh, this morning with you guys for a few minutes, and... and uh, but we are going to be reading from James 2, uh, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to be considering what does it mean for us as a community to be doers of God's Word. And I'm actually going to read one more verse. It's James 2, 1 through 13. You're welcome to uh, listen along as I read the passage or uh, follow along in your own Bible. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and the man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you have paid attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin or are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would convict us, challenge us, uh, comfort us, all according to our need, and we pray that our lives be more deeply ordered around your gospel. We pray this in your name, amen. What we're going to be considering this morning uh, from John, uh, what does it mean for an entire church to be a doer of God's law? And uh, the exact way that James puts it, he says, don't just be hearers of the law, be doers of the law. Uh, which means something kind of like this. He's saying, uh, don't just have a bunch of scripture memorized. Uh, don't know your theology really well. Don't just uh, have a great devotional life. Uh, those are all good things, but be a people that in very deep, profound ways apply scripture to your life. And that's what we're going to be reflecting on for the next few minutes there's three uh, things we'll say about this. We'll say that to be a doer of the law, a church doesn't play favorites. A church also has an eye for the disadvantaged, and the church is inspired by Christ. And so we're going to kind of work our way through these things as James uh, lays them out for us. But we'll start in that order. A church doesn't play favorites. Uh, let me read to you what uh, James says starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, James is describing to us a scenario where a church is playing favorites. And what's happening is uh, some people are coming in who are described as being more wealthy. Uh, they have nice clothes. Uh, they probably came in with a nice car. Uh, they're um, well-established in their community. There's maybe some name recognition even. And the church leaders are saying, we're so glad you're here. Come and sit in this important place. And then a, a poor man comes in who's probably not dressed as well, uh, who doesn't have the same name recognition, and the church actually ignores them. And worse, even the church uh, attempts to make them this, this person their servant. And James is saying this is a, a problem of favoritism in their church. Now, if I were to uh, brainstorm all the ways that a church could break God's law, uh, favoritism would probably not be very high on the list. Uh, we could probably think of a lot of things, really vicious slander, uh, nasty uh, power struggles, uh, spiritually abusive leadership, uh, but favoritism in the sense of showing attention to somebody and not others would not be high on a lot of our lists. Uh, but James has something very different to say about this. Uh, he actually tells us that this is not just a, a problem, but it's an actual sin. That's what he says later in our passage. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So James is saying that we not only break God's law with favoritism, but we actually set ourselves against the law as lawbreakers. You can maybe think of it in some way that we are uh, in the courts of heaven, we have a, a criminal status by simply showing favorites to other people. The reason for this, of course, is that God's law is a reflection of his own character. Uh, the things that he asks us to do are really things that he actually does first to us. And so when God says, don't show partiality to people, uh, don't be favorites, it's really because uh, God doesn't show favoritism towards us. Uh, he doesn't use our class, our material well-being, uh, a whole host of other things to actually uh, dispense his blessing to us. Now, a question that I had in this passage, and I think a question that you might have as well, is what is the difference between favoritism and friendship? And I think this is a, a question that we struggle a lot uh, with in churches. Uh, we go to a church service. There's always people that are friends that we're excited to see and talk with. And yet here, uh, James is telling us that uh, favoritism is showing attention and ascribing dignity to some people and not others. And the problem is that's a, a lot of how friendship actually looks within a church. And so to distinguish between favoritism and friendship, we need to dig a little deeper. And if we look in verse 4, uh, James gives us a clue to what that is. It's what he says. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James is telling us that, that the problem is that Christians are in the church are making kind of two classes of people. They're making distinctions. And one of these classes has a little more dignity a little more uh, special status in the church. And while there's a whole other class that is, it is actually contemptible in some way. 
that, that you're allowed to have sort of a condescending attitude. And this contempt is really where the problem all starts. And that's because what contempt does at its core is it takes away the rights and privileges that belong to people that are the very basis for fair treatment. When we treat on people unfairly, it's often because we don't think they have the rights to be treated fairly. In fact, some of the worst atrocities in history have started with philosophical or legal removing of a certain class of people's rights, and then horrible things happen. And this is what is happening in the situation that James is describing. The poor are ultimately being ignored because the community doesn't think that they have really the rights that uh, afford them a full status in the community. They don't have the privileges of being in a position of importance. I think this helps uh, us relate that passage to our own context. Uh, as we as a community strive to be doers of the law, uh, people who don't show favorites, uh, we want to uh, be people who are uh, open to others coming into our community. So how do we figure out where we're at with this? What's our, how do we get introspective with this? I think a, a question that we could ask, and a question that I've asked myself, is this. Who do we spend our Friday nights with? Uh, Friday night is the primo spot in the week. It's the end of the work week. You don't have to wake up early for work the next day. It's also better than Saturday night or Sunday night because you don't have to wake up for anything. And it's always a good time. I feel like at least the, uh, with me and Michelle, uh, Friday night is a good time. And the question we can ask ourselves is, who are we letting in to kind of the prime spots in our week? Uh, the weeks that are the most fun for us, uh, where our Friday nights, who are we inviting over on our Friday nights? Or maybe another question is, who are we not inviting over? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's maybe a face that comes to mind, a name, maybe a certain kind of person uh, that in some way we have a little bit of favoritism or a little bit of, uh, yeah, a little bit of favoritism that we extend. And this leads to our second point, which is a church is not only supposed to uh, avoid favoritism, but a church, the, as doers of the law, is supposed to have an eye for the disadvantaged. An eye for the disadvantaged. And we see this in sort of an unlikely place in our passage. Let me read to you verse 8. It says, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And so James is contrasting the royal law with favoritism in some way. Not immediately obvious, so let's kind of lean into this. What is going on with the royal law? Well, uh, why is it called the royal law and not just the law? The reason is that this law is the main law, the summative law, that governs all of God's kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is a, probably the biggest metaphor used in Scripture to describe God and what he's doing in his world. And a kingdom has a king, which is God himself. A kingdom has a realm, which is the earth. There are citizens of a kingdom, which is the church. And of course, a kingdom has a law. And what we're being told here is that God's main law for governing his kingdom is the law to love one another as we love ourselves. And there are many different kingdoms and nations and countries with many different kinds of legal systems. And yet only God here in his kingdom has this law to love one another as you love yourself. 
I appreciate this in part because uh, the law that obligates my conscience is, of course, a, lo uh, a law to love one another. Very beautiful and compelling. But what I also love about this is this not only obligates us, but it teaches us. It's not only an imperative, but it's didactic. This is what it looks like. Whenever we're in a situation that's complicated, we don't know how to honor God and love other people with it. The Lord has given us a law that allows us to gain some clarity. And all we have to do is ask ourselves, how would I like to be treated if I was in that situation? That's what this law is inviting us to ask. And so when people come to us, maybe for advice, a very helpful question is, how would you like to be treated? When we're trying to uh, pave the way through difficult uh, situations in our life, maybe relationship situations, maybe work situations, we can ask ourselves, how would I like to be treated? Now the question is though, how does this relate to favoritism? How is the royal law uh, opposite of favoritism? And to appreciate this, we have to know that the royal law was not an idea that James came up with. Uh, it was not actually something unique to the New Testament. It actually has its origin back in the Old Testament. And James is quoting from Leviticus 19. And in Leviticus 19, uh, God is giving instructions to Israel through Moses about how they're supposed to be a people that obey God's law. And he gives many different instructions, and then he goes on to say that the royal law, the law to love one another as yourself, is the summation of all the laws he just gave. So let me read to you some of the little laws that are attached uh, there in Leviticus 19. One of the things that Moses tells Israel is that if you're a farmer, don't pick all your grain and leave some on the margins of your field so that someone who's uh, poor is able to come by, pick some grain, and actually eat. He goes on to say that if you're an employer, you have lots of people that live paycheck to paycheck. Make sure that you're paying people on time so they're able to pay their bills and not be, not be kicked out of their house. He says that if you're part of the court system, if you're an attorney or a judge, uh, there are some people who don't know their way around the court system. Make sure that you're not taking disadvantage uh, advantage of those people. All these little particular laws are expressions of the royal law. And what they all have in common is that there are ways we have eyes for the disadvantaged. For us to love one another ultimately finds its ultimate expression in our love for people who are disadvantaged. I was talking with a, a pastor earlier this year, and uh, uh, some months ago, and he shed some light on this passage for me. He was saying that uh, this is not the first time that James is quoting from Leviticus and the royal law. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the book of Acts, uh, uh, James is actually one of the important characters there, and he also quotes from the book of Le Leviticus. Can't say that right. Leviticus. There we go. <laughs> and um, uh, let me kind of set the stage for you with this. This is in Acts 15. Uh, Paul, as a missionary, is busy evangelizing the entire Mediterranean world. Many people are coming to faith, most of whom don't have a Jewish background. And one of the questions is: is if you want to be a Christian you also have to adopt a Jewish heritage as well. And Paul's answer is no. Uh, faith in Christ is enough. You don't have to also become Jewish as well. And there is a, a really large council, uh, kind of like the, a, 
kind of like the Council of Nicene, very large council where all the apostles and elders get together, and Paul comes and reports on his experience there. And he's telling about all the amazing things, and he raises the question, he says, what's our church policy going to be on this? What are we officially going to say? If you're a Gentile and becomes a Christian, you also have to be Jewish. And then, guess who steps up and speaks? It's our friend James here. And what does James say in Acts 15? Well, he says, we always knew that Gentiles were going to become Christians. This is something that the, the Bible has talked about for a very long time. And then he goes on to say, you know the way we're going to treat uh, these new uh, uh, converts is we're going to treat them like the sojourners from Leviticus 19. There are these disadvantaged people that are in our community. And you know what? The, the royal law that told us to keep an eye out for the disadvantaged, we're going to treat them like this. This has some very big implications for us. It means that uh, the, the spirit of the royal law is one of the reasons that we as, as Christians, I'm assuming most of us are Gentile Christians, are able to have a place in the family of Abraham. And what does it mean for us to be a people who know that we were first invited in? Uh, how does this shape our way of uh, living as a church and as Christians? I think it helps us to also know that we can extend um, the same kind of invitational, hospitable ministry to others. Well, I want to consider the last element in our passage. For us to be doers of the law, not only are we not showing favorites, uh, not only do we have eyes for the disadvantaged, here's the last thing. We are inspired by Christ. Uh, let me tell you kind of two things about what this means. The first thing is, is that God gives us new standards. To be inspired by Christ means that in some way we have new standards for our community and for our relationships. This is how Paul or uh, James puts it in verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Uh, what James is saying here is that the way they're living is by cultural standards and not by God's standards. He's saying that they're judging people by their material wealth, but not by their spiritual wealth. We want to be judging people by the spiritual wealth that they have in Christ. So the principle behind it is this. It's that whenever we find ourselves struggling with favoritism, in some way it's because we're using different standards to build relationships and form a community. I want to use an example in my own life. When I was in my late 20s, I moved to St. Louis to attend seminary. When I attended seminary, I was uh, uh, from Colorado, and I was uh, very much a Colorado mountain guy. And I looked like it, and talked like it, and acted like it. And I suddenly found myself in a community, uh, both in seminary and in St. Louis, people that did not look like me and talked like me. And my first thought was, who are these people? These are people aren't part of my tribe. And then God began to work in me, and he began to put the gospel deeper and massaging it into my heart. And one of the things that began to change in my life was I began to see people differently. One of the things, I, I began to look at other people and not think to myself, they need to change. I began to think, maybe I need to change. And I began to be curious about people that originally I didn't have any curiosity about. I began to make myself vulnerable to people. 
I was less guarded. I took my mask off and I made myself weak and helpless before people. Eventually, these people that were the them became us, and they became my friends. They were also brought into my Friday night life as well. And when I was uh, thinking about how did this happen, how did a Colorado mountain guy become friends with all these other people? And I was at church one day, and it was a big church, and I was uh, leaning in the back against the wall, and I was looking out at the service, and I had this thought that went through my head. I'm like, aha, that's it. This is what it is. I was looking out at the back of everybody's heads, and I thought to myself, this is the strangest thing in the world. There's white people, there's black people, there's rich and poor, there's liberal, there's conservative, and yet all these people aren't at each other. There seems to be a surprising amount of unity and harmony. And I know what it is, because I looked past the heads of everybody, and I looked further into the room, and I saw a minister. And it was there that he was taking bread, and he was breaking it. And he took wine, and he was pouring it, saying, this is the body and blood of Christ. And what I realized was that the gospel had the power to completely reform a community uh, and give unity where there was diversity. And what happens is when we come to the table, we are living out the gospel. We're coming to Christ saying, I have nothing in my hands to make myself worthy before you. And then God looks at us and says, that's okay, Christ is sufficient. And this uh, way of doing relationship with God where his grace is what establishes relationship then becomes our way of doing relationship with each other. And as we look at each other and we say, yeah, you're not like me. You're different than me. Maybe you have things that make yourself difficult. Maybe I have things that make myself somebody difficult to be along with. That's okay because we look at each other and we say, Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient for each of us. And what that's doing is it's creating new standards for us as a community. It's no longer rich and poor, or left and right, anything else. Uh, what it is, is that gospel is the standard for being in relationship with each other. I like how one theologian said it. He says, we're not only justified by faith, we also have fellowship by faith as well. So to be inspired by Christ means that the gospel gives us new standards. Here's another thing. Being inspired by Christ means that we are a community shaped by mercy. This is how James puts it at the end of his passage. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Judgment triumphs over, excuse me, mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, James is telling his readers that the way they treat the poor uh, is, is a, a failure to show mercy to other people. Uh, and he, uh, he gives them a little bit of an admonition. He says that the, the Lord is actually going to judge them at the end uh, when he returns. One of the things that we confess and believe with the Apostles' Creed is that God is coming to judge the living and the dead. And what James is telling us here is that one of the things that God is going to hold us accountable for is whether we have shown mercy to other people. And this mercy is not a, a feeling or a posture towards other people. It's an actually a proactive inclusion of others into our community. But it goes on. The passage ends with James saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. That itself seems like a very triumphalistic uh, statement. We are, uh, the question for us, though, is uh, if we're to be judged, 
by our ability to show mercy to other people, will God also show mercy to us when he judges us? And if you remember what we said at the, the basis of our discrimination, our contempt towards uh, others a few minutes ago, is based on the fact that we take other people's rights away. Well, that helps us understand the question of will God show mercy to us when he returns? And the answer is that he will. And he does it by the fact that he actually gives Jesus' rights to us. That uh, for us to be Christians who believe, have faith in Christ, means that the rights of Jesus that he has before his Father are also our rights. And so as Jesus stands before his Father, experiencing utter delights, unconditional favor, and uh, love and affection, that's also what the Father uh, feels towards us. As Jesus stands before him, innocent and blameless, we also are innocent and blameless. As uh, Jesus has authority and power over this world, we also have authority and power over this world. And so for us to be a people who are inspired by Christ, it means that we show mercy, but ultimately that's because we've been shown mercy by Christ. Would that be true of us today? Let's pray together. We pray that your spirit would teach us to be people who uh, show mercy and love others, uh, have an eye for those who are marginalized. We pray that uh, you would continue to shape us into the image of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to spend a a moment in uh, confessing our faith. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 91, and uh, relates to us as doers of the law. And so, Christian, uh, what do you do that is good? Let's respond together. Only that which arises out of true faith conforms to God's law and is done for his glory and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. Let's stand together as we worship the Lord by singing, Take my life and let it be.